voice of God said, Put it back. That Christmas, Teddy got his first tool belt. He was so excited. And there's a story right there in somebody's front yard. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Folk tales, fairy tales, tall tales, personal and family tales, and more. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. A pleasure for me every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We've got some great ones for you today. You're going to hear from the great storyteller Donald Davis from North Carolina. He's going to tell the story, That's What Mamas Do. It's a story bound to bring back to your heart and mind memories of home and hearth and some of the people who are dear to you. You're going to hear from Dolores Hines. Another wonderful family story called Made from Scratch that you're going to love. And uh, you'll hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal, a memory of singing in the junior high school choir. But introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Lacey Ivey. Lacey, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Good to be here. And we're going to hear this Martha Reed Johnson story. What can you tell me about the watch? So this story is about a young boy who uh, just kind of follows along with his dad. He really looks up to him. And he's just kind of a daddy's boy, you know? Yeah. And so he learns to use tools like his dad does, and his dad gives him this hammer, which is fun for a little kid to use. But <laughs> he goes and he finds his dad's really nice watch one day, and things mm. just kind of turn a little bit <laughs> with how events play out but this boy learns a really good lesson and his dad is very loving about it yeah and it's a really nice sweet story and, and what, what is it that drew you to this story um it just kind of drew me to the how much i relate to it through my own family hmm. how much i look up to my dad and i've always been a daddy's girl so i love being outdoors with him and working with him and also the fact that I have a watch that belonged to my great-grandmother and how much I didn't realize oh, wow. her watch kind of means to me and the memories yeah. that it has with it. So I thought it was really cool just that there's this story that is yeah. specifically that. Let's listen to the story. It's called The Watch, and the storyteller is Martha Reed Johnson. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. In the 1930s in Thomaston, Connecticut, there was a little boy named Teddy. He lived in a house with his mom and his dad and his little brother, Will. Teddy was trouble. He didn't mean to be. His curiosity and his enthusiasm sometimes got the better of him. Teddy loved to follow his father around. His father loved to fix things. And Teddy's father had the coolest job in the world. Teddy's father worked for a clock company named Seth Thomas. His father's job was to install and repair tower clocks all over the country. Teddy just imagined his father harnessed in, swinging from the ropes with his tool belt around his waist, installing those clocks. Teddy wanted to be just like his father. When they were home, Teddy would follow his father into the back garage where all the tools were. And he would watch his father repair lawnmowers, build furniture, and he loved all the different tools that his father used. That Christmas, Teddy got his first tool belt. 
He was so excited. He put that tool belt on, and he began to play with the screwdrivers, the wrenches, the pliers. But the tool he loved best was the hammer. Teddy loved to play with that hammer, and he set about fixing everything in that house. He started in the basement. He fixed the pipes. He fixed the washer. Then he went upstairs, and he began to fix the pipes under the kitchen sink. He fixed the nails that were popping up on the floorboards. And then he went upstairs, and he began to wander around through his room and down the hallway, looking for things to fix. And he stood on the threshold of his mother and father's room. He knew he wasn't supposed to go in there. But he thought, maybe there's something to fix. And as he went into his father and mother's room, he looked at the nightstand, and he noticed that on the nightstand was a green velvet box. Teddy knew what was in that box. That was where his father kept his gold pocket watch. It only came out of the box on Sunday mornings. When his father got dressed for church, he would put on his suit and he would take the watch out of the box and put it in the pocket of his vest. The watch was very special. It was one that had been made by a clockmaker for Seth Thomas. One of the matching watches to his father's had been given to the President of the United States. His father had received his watch for 10 years of good service. Well, that watch would come out of the box on Sunday mornings. He would put it in his pocket of his suit vest. And during the Sunday morning church services, when Teddy was restless and squirming and wiggling in the chair next to his father, his father would pull out the watch and show it to Teddy and then put the watch back in the pocket. As Teddy stood in the room looking at that green velvet box on the nightstand, the hammer in his hand, he walked over and he picked up the box. He thought, I just want to look. And he opened the box. And then he thought, I just wonder what it feels like. And he picked it up and it filled the palm of his hand. And as he stared at that gold watch, that hammer just came to life. And suddenly he banged on the face of that watch and a little piece of the porcelain broke off and flew across the room. Whoa. Then Teddy banged it again and again and again, and those little pieces of porcelain were flying off the watch in every direction. And as Teddy was standing there with the watch and the hammer, he suddenly heard the back door open, and he heard his father's voice. Dot, I'm home. Oh, Teddy felt terrible. He ran into his room. He pitched his hammer underneath his bed. He opened the back window, and he dropped the watch out into the snow below his window. He sat on the edge of the bed, and then he heard his mother's voice. Teddy, it's time for dinner. Teddy stood up, and he went into the bathroom, and he washed his hands, and he combed his hair, and he went down to the kitchen table. He sat down, and he ate all his vegetables. He helped his mom clear the table. Then he asked, can I help with the dishes? His mom just looked at him and said, okay, Teddy, you can dry. So Teddy dried the dishes and stacked them on the counter for his mom. He wiped down the table. He wiped up his brother's high chair. And then he went into the living room, and he sat down to play with his brother. His mother sat down in the chair in the living room and began to do her crocheting. He watched his father go up the stairs, heard those steps down the hallway and into the bedroom. Then he heard his father's voice. Dot, did you move my watch? His mother just looked at him. 
Teddy didn't say a word. His mother called back up, No, Flick, I didn't move your watch. Sunday came. Everyone got dressed for church. He heard his father say, Dot, are you sure you didn't move my watch? Teddy didn't say anything. His mother said, No, I didn't move your watch, Flick. They went to church that Sunday, and Teddy sat perfectly still through the whole service. His mother kept watching him. The weeks went by, and every once in a while, Teddy would hear his father say, Dot, where is my watch? Teddy never said anything. Spring came. The snow melted. It was time to work in the yard. Teddy loved to work in the yard with his father. He had his very own rake, his own size, and they went out to the backyard, and they began to clear all the leaves and the sticks and the brush from the winter, and the yard was looking good. And then Teddy watched his father go right over to the shrubs underneath his bedroom window, and Teddy remembered the watch. And he began to rake in the farthest back corner of the yard, until he saw his father bend over, pick something up, and stand up. And he watched his father's shoulders slump and his head drop forward. Teddy felt terrible. He walked over and he stood before his father, and he mustered up all the courage he could muster in his six-year-old body, and he said, Dad, I did that with my hammer. I I didn't mean to. His father just looked down at him. He looked at the watch, wiped a tear out of the corner of his eye, and said, I know, Teddy. Let's go inside. Teddy grew up, and Teddy had five children of his own. All of Teddy's children were trouble. They didn't mean to be. It was just their curiosity and their enthusiasm, sometimes got the better of them. One fall afternoon, Teddy's oldest three boys were in the backyard and they were looking up at the house. Teddy's house was three stories tall. The top floor had been an attic, but Teddy had become a master of tools like his father and had converted that attic into the boys' suite. So as his three sons were looking up at the attic window, which was open, they were standing under an apple tree and the apples underneath their feet were rotten and smushy. And they began to wonder, do you think we can get some apples in the window? And they agreed to try. Chris and Brian were not very good at their aim, and they threw those apples and they just smooshed on the side of the house. Eric was slightly better, and as he threw his apples, they went right into the bedroom and smooshed in the room. It was a mess. And as Ted looked out and saw those boys throwing those apples up at the house, he caught his breath And then the phone rang, and it was his mother. And his mother said, Ted, you need to come to Florida. Your father's had a heart attack. You need to come down now. Ted left his family, and he flew to Florida, and he stayed with his mother. And after his father passed, they were in the house going through his father's things. Ted had sat down on the couch, and he was just thinking about his father and his mother came out of the bedroom, and sat down next to him. She opened up her hands, and she had a green velvet box. And she said, Ted, 
Your father and I have thought for a long time that you needed this. Teddy took it in his hands and he opened up that box and he saw that gold pocket watch with the smashed face and he said, you kept it. His mom said, yes, you need it now. When Teddy got home, he took a string of fishing line and he tied it to the watch and then he hung it above the fireplace mantle in the living room. And when Teddy's children were trouble, Teddy would stare at the fireplace and pace. Teddy's children grew up, and Teddy had eight grandchildren, seven grandsons, one granddaughter. His sixth grandson, Joel, was trouble with a capital T. Joel didn't mean to be. He just was. His curiosity and his enthusiasm just got the better of him. In the Christmas of 1997, Ted had all of his children, five children, sons-in-laws, daughters-in-laws, and his eight grandchildren at home for Christmas. His grandson, Joel, found a permanent black magic marker, and he walked into the newly wallpapered foyer and began at the bottom of the stairs with that black magic marker. You know the kind where you open up the cap and you can smell the marker long before you see it? Joel started at the bottom of the stairs, and he began to draw squiggly lines, making his letters J-O. Up the staircase he went. Joel was mine. I came around the corner. I smelled the marker before I saw it, and I saw Joel halfway up the steps. And I screamed, Joel, what are you doing? And as I went up the steps to grab him, my father grabbed my shoulder. I turned and looked at him. He said, Marty, come with me. I said, what? He said, just come with me. And he took me into the living room, and he stood me in front of the fireplace and told me to stare at the mantle. And then he began to pace. Oh, I remember that pacing. I said, Dad, what am I looking for? And then I saw it. He said, just look at the watch. And I went over and I picked it up off the mantle. It filled my palm. I could just barely make out the letters Seth Tom. The gold was tarnished. The hands were broken. I said, Dad, what happened to the watch? And that's when he told me the story of his tool belt and his hammer and how he smashed his father's watch. I said, that's why you stared at the fireplace all those years? He just smiled. And then he looked at me and he said, Marty, I have wondered for years who should get this watch. And I think you and Joel are gonna need it. So from that day to this day, that watch sits on my mantelpiece in a frame with a picture of my father. And when Joel is Joel, I pace in front of the fireplace. 
<laughs> the Watch, a story by Martha Reed Johnson, you know, made all the more special by the conversation that I had with Lacey Ivy before we started listening to the story. Lacey, I'm thinking about your grandmother's watch. Uh, those artifacts can be important windows into great memories, can't they? They really can. I remember... I just remember when I look at that watch, I don't know if I've ever seen her wear it before, mm. but just knowing that it belonged to her, I can remember walking into her house and the pristine white carpet that you always had to take your <laughs> shoes off right. for and making butternut squash soup on her stove and all that fun stuff yeah. and just how sweet she was. And, you know, those memories will come to you in a lot of ways, but having an artifact, you know, having an artifact that you can use as Again, kind of a window into a lot of those memories is really useful. Uh, hearing you talk about your grandmother's watch, hearing the story by Martha Reed Johnson made me think about a little walnut shell that used to sit on the bedside table of my grandparents. And I, I, I it, it was a fixture all through my childhood, and I finally asked them about it. And it had been, uh, it had been kind of the joke ring box for a, a, a very beautiful ring that my grandmother had given, my grandfather had given to my grandmother as a gift. And they had kept that little walnut uh, because it had been used by my grandfather as a ring box. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, these, these tiny little artifacts that may not mean much to other people, but mean a lot to us. And, and again, bring on those memories uh, as we interact with those things. What a pleasure to hear that story, again, not only with you, but with Lacey Ivy. Lacey, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard from Martha Reed Johnson, a story called The Watch. And uh, in just a moment you're going to hear from Dolores Hydock, a story called Made from Scratch. And we're going to bring you a Donald Davis story, too. You'll love each one. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share with the people in your life, around the kitchen table or the living room, Here's a memory of mine. It's a memory about singing in the junior high school choir. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. For a kid interested in singing at American Fork Junior High School, it was the absolute pinnacle gig you could get. A spot in the Junior Patriots, the show choir led by Mr. Mortensen. Singing with the J.P.'s had turned my head from being first chair clarinetist in the 8th grade B class of the junior high school band, which was tough to do because, I mean, first chair, right? But when auditions came up, I rolled the dice and I made the cut. Soon I was wearing the Junior Patriots uniform, a dark blue suit made of polyester, tough enough that you couldn't cut it with a bandsaw, and a white dress shirt and a red and white striped necktie. The girls wore blue plaid skirts and bright red sweater vests over white dress blouses and thus attired 
We were the unmistakable fighting force of junior high school choral excellence. We had a theme song, even, with choreography. The song went, every guy, every girl, every guy and girl is needed to make a new tomorrow. There was more, but you get it, right? We did gigs outside of school hours. We'd play old folks' homes and elementary school assemblies, singing, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, and choral arrangements of Beatles' songs, and in the spring, we went on a trip, a trip, a performance tour, a bunch of ninth graders and a couple of chaperones and all our uniforms safely stowed in the bays beneath the school bus. We were going to be on a tour performing in the gymnasiums of regional middle schools for exactly two days and one night. And when seatmates were chosen for the tour, I had the impossible good fortune of being assigned to sit next to Aaron Brown, the junior Patriots accompanist. I had a crush on Aaron that wouldn't go away, at least it hadn't all during ninth grade, and, well, this trip was going to be even better than any of us had ever imagined. We was an amazing two days. We performed at rural junior high schools all over the state, and once for an actual high school, kids older than we were. We ate continental breakfasts, which sounded super fancy, but were really just egg McMuffins and juice. We stayed in a hotel far from home and went swimming in the hotel pool. And Aaron Brown absolutely, steadfastly, wholeheartedly did not fall in love with me. I made room in my backpack for my Walkman and a cassette copy of Speak and Spell, the 1981 Depeche Mode album, and an adapter so you could listen to the Walkman with two pairs of headphones. And I brought an extra pair for Aaron, and she listened with me to New Life and Just Can't Get Enough, and we sang the choruses and the harmonies from the album, and Aaron didn't fall in love with me. In the hotel, Aaron and her roommates sent someone to run interference with the chaperones so she and Brenda Birch and Melissa Sheets could visit me and my roommates in our room and present us with candy bars they'd sneaked out to buy at the corner gas station. And each candy bar was chosen specially for the guy for whom it had been chosen for reasons. Like mine was a Clark bar because they said I looked like Clark Kent. This was a long time ago. Remember, it was mostly my glasses, I think. And Aaron didn't fall in love with me. Finally, on the way home from the trip about an hour away from the junior high school parking lot where our parents would pick us up, chugging up the freeway across the Utah desert, just as we passed a place where a hill had been cut away to make room for the road to come through, Aaron Brown, exhausted from two days of buying candy bars and listening to Depeche Mode and swimming in the hotel pool and singing for rural junior high school kids and accompanying the junior patriots on the piano, Aaron Brown fell asleep on my shoulder. Nothing more ever happened than that, and the truth is, during that trip, Aaron Brown moved on, developed a crush on Brett Bunker. I should have seen it coming, but you know what? I can still point out the spot on the freeway where it happened. Junior high school crushes are dumb like that. A couple of months after school ended and Aaron Brown moved away. But I gotta say, two days full of Depeche Mode and subterfuge and candy bars and swimming in the hotel pool and Aaron Brown falling asleep on my shoulder as a member of the Junior Patriots, well, 
You'd beat the heck out of anything that ever happened to me as first chair clarinetist in the eighth grade B class of the junior high band. That's for dang sure. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. If it happens for you, send those memories to us. Write them down. Send them to our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. Up next, you're going to hear a story from Dolores Hydock, a story called Made from Scratch. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the things that we see on screen, the great songs that we digest and love, the stories that we tell around the campfire or the kitchen table or the living room, and, of course, in the books that we read. It's always a pleasure to have Rachel Wadham with us to talk about some of her favorites. Rachel, pleasure to have you. Always happy to be here. You know, the first scary book that I ever bought. Ooh, you know, I love and I, it. And I'm going all the way back now to elementary school when we would look forward every season to the book orders. Oh, right? yes, the Scholastic Book the Scholastic Orders, the Scholastic Book, book Fairs. Yes, 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 I love it. <laughs> and I ordered a book of stories by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, I love it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that, I think that should be every child's first introduction to yeah. really scary stories. And I think yeah. it was a little bit, I, I think I was a yeah. little young. Yeah. And But I sort of grew into, yeah. you know, all oh, that yeah. stuff. It's good to well, have the I book, think right? They're, yeah, they're accessible to a wide range of audiences. Yeah. And the thing about Poe for me is he is iconic in his style. Yeah. And there are so many storytellers out there where you can tell that it's their story yep. just by looking at it, yep. right? You wouldn't even have to have their name, right? Yep. Read and a few lines. And you're just and you're like, there. oh yeah, this is Poe, right? <laughs> you know, and, and there's and there's even poets that do that. You know, like Emily Dickinson, I think you can just you can just tell it's her, right? Yeah. And that for me is really cool and interesting because to develop such a unique style yeah. and a unique way of telling your story really makes you an interesting storyteller. Yeah. And I think all storytellers really work for that, right? right. They they have that kind of signature style. Yeah. Right? And we're we're not yeah. even we're not even so much talking about Poe today as we yeah, are as talking we are about, about this interesting context. So there was a book that was published recently called The Raven's Tale by Cat yeah. Winters. And it's actually a fictionalized biography of Edgar Allan Poe. So he is the main character in this uh. book. And what she has done is she has taken his style and his life and actually written a novel that honors that. Huh. And it's really tricky and I, you know, when I first started reading it, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be this is going to be really interesting because is she going to be able to really capture Poe? Right. Mm. That essence and and that essence of scariness that's just on the edge of scary. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think when I think of this kind of scary, I think of Hitchcock and that kind of thing sure. where they build scariness through the emotion and the tension in yeah. the story and not through the OK, I'm now going to show you this <laughs> thing that's scary that's going to happen. Right. So I heard 
heard you use the phrase fictional biography. Fictional biography, yeah. So that's an interesting kind of context because what it is, is it is biographical. So it does have true biographical elements in it, Mm -hmm. meaning that it talks about, you know, his his young years of his family and his schooling and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it is very much true to that. But it's fictionalized because what she does is she puts an, a kind of a fantasy element in it. And what it turns out is that Poe's muse, who is this ethereal kind of ghost-like creature yeah. that is a part of his life, keeps coming to him and wanting him to be with his muse. But very much in Poe's early life, he did not want to go that direction, particularly because his family didn't want him to, right? Because they thought storytelling was like, you know, a horrible profession. Sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) yeah. The storyteller winds up making (laughs) furniture out of unsold copies of his books. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's Poe, too, And that's Poe, yeah, Yeah. definitely. And so they were looking for him to make, you know, become a gentleman. And, you know, his family was not a very supportive, loving family. And so So this story is about this muse and how she needs to get him to tell his stories because if he doesn't, then she's going to disappear. And so it's this really interesting kind of juxtaposition of real things and fictional things as well. Because, you know, I I don't necessarily think Poe had a muse in that way or (laughs) anything like that. But I I do think that this is this interesting subtext there of about embracing our creativity, even in the face of everybody telling us that it's not possible to do. And how heartbreaking that can be, because it really was heartbreaking for Poe to have to put all of this other stuff aside and to finally embrace this storytelling and in fact this kind of storytelling that was darkness right it wasn't just not being a storyteller it was like he was telling the kind of stories that people didn't want people to tell right you know I don't know if this is a question that we can answer in just a couple of minutes that we have left but I think about Scorsese did a a, a recent biography of Bob Dylan which is a a fictional biography Mm -hmm. like this yes yeah and I and I think to myself now I'm very much with the grain because I I really love storytelling in kind of all its form uh, or I'm interested in that but I think that who is a biography like that for right because it can't be for the person who really wants to understand who wants to know about the facts of Bob Dylan's life or Edgar Allan Poe's life in this case, right? It's got to be for something else. Yeah, and I think it would go back to what I was saying earlier, that it's more about capturing the true emotion of Mm. it. Because oftentimes in these situations, when you tell a factual biography, it's you have to be a kind of a step away and you have to be a disinterested observer as it were into what in the story you're trying to tell but when you make it fictionalized you don't have to do that you can add some of that emotion in and particularly in situations like this where there is some room for interpretation because we don't know what Poe was thinking we don't know what why he made the choices that he made, right? I mean, even though we have some documents and letters and these kinds of things, there's not all, you know, we don't sit down in our journals and say, yes, and I made this decision because of this and this and this and this and this. And And the biographer can't invent, Yeah, they can't invent that. But the novelist can. But the novelist can. So I think that that adds that in for me. So I think for me, these kinds of biographies are more about the emotion and and the storytelling itself than 
than it is about the facts type of thing. Well, and I love these because, you know, just as a concluding remark, I love these because it does make you want to learn more. Yeah, for the Poe fan and for the soon-to-be Poe fan, yes. right? <laughs> the Raven's Tale. What a pleasure. Cat Winters, Cat Winters of course, is the author. The author. Yes. A pleasure to have you, Rachel. Thank My you so pleasure. much. My pleasure. Thank you. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and it's such a pleasure always to chat with Rachel Wadham about a terrific book. We'll have her back for sure. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Dolores Hydock next with a story called Made from Scratch. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, we've got a story from Dolores Hydock called Made from Scratch. Now, you're probably already thinking of homemade recipes with fresh ingredients, and that's sort of what this story is about, the stories that make up our lives, those fresh ingredients that make up a whole person. The story, again, is called Made from Scratch, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. out there who are storytellers, and I know there's a lot of you out there, know that most stories don't come out of storybooks, they just come out of everyday life. You know how it is, you, you go visit a friend, you're walking through your friend's yard, you admire this real pretty pin oak tree there in her yard, she says to you, well, my next door neighbor's father gave her six pin oaks to plant, but she only had room for five, and so she gave me one. That's the only one of the six that lived. Then she says, a year or two ago, her dad died. And sometimes now I see her standing on her porch looking at that tree. And I'm so glad I took such good care of it because I know she looks at my tree and thinks of her dad. And there's a story right there in somebody's front yard. Or you're at a party and you're heading back to your table with a plate full of hors d'oeuvres and you overhear some people talking. They're saying, I will never forget the Christmas Eve Uncle Joe came home from the Navy with the black eye patch and the Japanese wife. Now there's the story. <laughs> you can just see the handsome young man in his navy dress blues, the shy girl by his side, her hair shiny and black, her face hopeful and scared. Or you're standing in line at the Kmart. In front of you is a young mother with a screaming three-year-old. She is buying a single can of Coca-Cola with a credit card. <laughs> As she rummages through her purse for her car keys, she sees you and says, if they gave bonus miles for guilt trips, I could fly twice around the world. <laughs> well, this first story out of my grab bag that I want to share with you tonight is a story that came my way sort of like that. I was at a big dinner party, one of those banquets where you're seated at these huge tables, seat 10 people around a big table. Nobody knows each other. Everybody's all dressed up in uncomfortable clothes. You've got nothing in common to talk about except food. And so as the food was served, the woman sitting next to me told this story. She said, I will never forget the first and last time I made turnip greens from scratch. <laughs> she said, I was born and raised in Stanford, Connecticut. To me, greens are something you put on. <laughs> 
But somewhere in my mid-20s, I found myself in graduate school in North Carolina and in love with a charming southern boy named Taylor. Well, don't ask me why, but sometime that spring, I took it into my head that I was going to make Taylor a sure enough southern dinner. Black-eyed peas, cornbread, turnip greens, the works. Well, my two housemates, both of them native North Carolinians, told me I was crazy, tried to talk me out of it. But when they saw I was serious about it, they offered to help. They even went with me to the grocery store, helped me select a bouquet of turnip greens. It pretty much took over our tiny little shared refrigerator. It looked like a shrub growing there between the ketchup and the Diet Cokes. I was pretty overwhelmed at the thought of having to clean all of that vegetation, but one of my housemates said, oh, that's no problem. You just clean them in the washing machine. That's what my mother always did. Well, the day of the big event arrived, and my housemates, considerate as always, left me the house and the afternoon to myself to prepare. Now, they had told me the secret of the washing machine, but they had not told me the whole secret of the washing machine. They did not tell me, for instance, that you put the turnip greens in a pillowcase, wash them in cold water, delicate cycle, just a few minutes. I washed them like you wash kitchen towels. Hot water, full cap of detergent, double rinse, regular cycle. 40 minutes later, the machine shuddered to a halt. I opened the lid. There was nothing in there but two dead crickets. <laughs> the turnip greens had vanished, gone to that mysterious place where missing collar buttons and lost socks must go. But she said, you know, I feel like I took an important first step that day toward becoming a true daughter of my adopted southern homeland. That evening when Taylor rang the doorbell, I answered the door wearing a silk dress, pumps, pearls, my brightest smile. I told him that for dinner I had made what my housemates assured me every really modern southern woman makes for dinner for a special occasion. Reservations. <laughs> Made from Scratch, a story told for you by the wonderful storyteller Dolores Haddock. And we're going to wrap up with a story from Donald Davis, the wonderful storyteller from North Carolina. People call him the Dean of Storytelling. Such an ambassador he is for storytelling all over the country. His stories are sometimes comical, sometimes tender-hearted, and audiences of all kinds are able to listen to those stories over and over and see their selves and their families in those stories. This is a tale called That's What Mamas Do, and it's sure to bring to your mind memories of home and hearth and some of the people in your life that you cherish the most. Here's the story, That's What Mamas Do, from Donald Davis, here on The Appleseed. That's What Mamas Do. The year that I was five years old, my mother spent the whole year getting me ready to start school when I was six. One day she said to me, Today it's time for you to learn to go to the store by yourself. We lived in a little house on Plot Creek Road, an unpaved road outside Hazelwood in the mountains of North Carolina. The store, Plot Creek Grocery, 
was only about 300 yards down the road from our house at the stop sign where our road met the pavement. In a normal world, you would have been able to stand on the porch of our house and see Plot Creek Grocery, but not at our house. No, because Plot Creek Road was not paved, and the dust stirred up by cars coming up and down the road all came straight inside our house, my mother said. She and my dad had let a big hedge grow up, which ran down between our garden and the road, down between our yard and the road, and even all the way down between our cow pasture and the road so that it would catch the dust, and my mother thought that kept the dust out of our house. So when you stood on our front porch, you couldn't see anywhere. My mother gave me a dime and a nickel and told me that I was to walk by myself out through the dust hedge down the left-hand side of Plot Creek Road facing traffic. Look both ways when I cross the road and buy a loaf of colonial thin-sliced sandwich bread and then walk back home on the other left-hand side of the road. Very proudly, I took the dime and the nickel, walked out to the roadside, turned left, and completely out of sight of my mother, walked down the road to Plot Creek Grocery. Mr. Cagle ran the place, and the store was so small that he usually stood in the door and then stepped outside to give people room to get inside to pick out what they wanted. I never went in the store. I gave him the money, asked for the bread. He gave it to me along with two pennies change, and I started up the other roadside, proudly headed back home. I was almost to the Lawson Mahaffey's house when a car passed me, eased over to the left side of the road, an arm came out the window and put the rolled-up Waynesville Mountaineer into the Mahaffey's newspaper box. As soon as I saw that, I was terribly jealous because we didn't get the newspaper at our house. No, my dad bought the newspaper in town where he worked at the bank, and then he brought it home with him in the afternoon. I so badly wanted to get a newspaper at home or to get some mail in our always empty mailbox. My daddy also got mail at the bank and brought it home in the afternoon. I didn't do it. My brain had nothing to do with it. It was just that as I walked past the Mahaffey's mailbox, my left hand a free agent all on its own, somehow reached up, pulled the newspaper out of their mailbox, unrolled it, and five years old, unable to recognize the word stop on a stop sign, I began to walk up the roadside, reading the newspaper to myself. All of a sudden, from across the road, behind my mother's dust hedge, the voice of God came from the lower corner of our pasture. But it somehow sounded like my mother's voice. The voice of God said, put it back. And my body backed up. My hand rolled the newspaper back up and stuck it back in the Mahaffey's paper box, and I finished the walk home.
When I got home, my mother was waiting for me there on the front porch of the house. Not a word was ever said about anything that had happened, except that I had done a good job on my way to the store. That night at supper, we were sitting at the table. My little brother Joe was at the other end, my mother on one side, my daddy on the other side. When all of a sudden, my mother said to my daddy, I sent him to the store today, and he took the Mahappy's paper out of their paper box on the way back home. I knew he was going to do it, she said. I looked at my mother and almost started crying. I said, you knew I was going to do that? I didn't even know I was going to do it. How did you know I was going to do it? She looked at me and smiled and said, because that's what boys do. I said, were you hiding in the pasture watching me? She said, of course I was. Didn't you hear my voice? I thought, sure I did, but I thought it was God talking. I said to my mother, why were you hiding down there spying on me? I was supposed to be learning how to go to the store. Why were you watching me? My mother smiled again, and she simply said, because that's what mamas do. That event established the contract under which my mother and I lived with one another for the rest of our lives. From that day on, it was my job to do what boys do, and it was her job to do what mamas do, and we both kept our part of the bargain. There are a thousand stories about things we did. I can only tell one or two of them. When I was in the sixth grade and my little brother was in the fourth grade, my dad had bought a new house and we were going to move as soon as school was out. During the spring that year, before we moved, he and I had gotten as a joint birthday present a gigantic swing set to go in the yard of our house. It was A-framed. It had two big swings. Then it had a sort of seesaw affair on the end that we could both sit on and pump and glide back and forth together in. After my daddy put the swing set together, he told us, that when we moved to our new house, he would put the legs in concrete so that it would not turn over. But now we had to use it carefully because it just had to sit in the sloping front yard of our old house until we moved when school got out. The swing set was great. It was fun to swing, but it was more fun when I got to push my brother Joe. I could push him, and when the swing would go back and forth, back and forth, sometimes when he would go forward, the back legs of the swing set would come off the ground. And then when he would come swinging back toward me, the front legs of the swing set would come off the ground. I would push him harder and harder, and pretty soon the legs would be walking back and forth, back and forth, jumping off the ground. And with a little slope of the front yard, the swing set could walk all the way down through the yard. And when my daddy got home in the afternoon, he couldn't figure out how the swing set had moved. One day I was pushing my brother, and all he could do was say one word over and over again. Higher, higher, higher. 
I kept pushing him way out. The legs would come off each time he got to the other end of his swing. And as he came back toward me, I had to keep stepping farther and farther back and reaching higher to push him forward again. He kept saying, higher, higher. And I said, hang on. I think I can make you go all the way around. I stepped back, gave him a gigantic running push, And when he went forward in the swing that time, he never came back. The chain straightened out parallel to the ground, and my brother simply kept going. The legs came off the ground, the whole swing tilted over, and it all hit the ground at the same time. And my brother hit so hard, it killed him. I knew he was dead. When I got to him, he wasn't breathing. He had knocked the breath completely out of him. I thought, should I run, get mama, or should I just run and keep running? All of a sudden, my brother took a breath and came back to life. And with the superhuman strength that little kids get as times like that, somehow we got the swing turned back up in place again. We never said a word. At supper that night, I was at my end of the table. My brother Joe was at his end. My mother and daddy were on their sides. And all of a sudden, my mother said to my daddy, they turned the swing set over today. My brother looked at my mother and said, how did you know that? She said, I knew they were going to do it. My brother said, you knew we were going to do it. We could have gotten hurt. You knew, how did you know we were going to do it? She said, because that's what boys do. My brother said, why didn't you stop us? Why didn't you tell us not to do it? My mother said, I could have stopped you today, and then you would have done it tomorrow. If I'd have stopped you tomorrow, you would have done it the next day. I would have had to stop you every day for the next 10 years, But I knew if I let you go ahead and do it once, you wouldn't do it again. My brother said, why did you do that? We could have been killed. My mother smiled. She said, because that's what mamas do. Well, finally, we moved to the new house. My brother and I grew up, and once we were in high school, I got my driver's license, and a couple of years later, he got his. By this time, we had a car and a half. We had one that always started and one that ran about half the time. And sometimes at night, my brother and I would both be out in two different cars. The worst thing about the new house was that it had doors that locked. And that meant that at night, when my brother and I were not at home where we were supposed to be, We always got home to find every door locked except one. My mother always told us that no matter how late we were out, even past when we were supposed to be out, the kitchen door would always be left unlocked for us. The problem is that the kitchen door opened into the garage. And if we got home after we were supposed to, We found the garage doors pulled down, the garage doors my daddy called 
the earthquake doors. Big sectional garage doors that ran on wheels and were pulled by gigantic springs. When you opened one, it made so much noise it would wake people up in three houses down the street. My mother would leave the doors up until we were supposed to be home. And if we weren't, down went the doors, and we had to cause an earthquake to get in. By the time we got the doors up, our mother would be out of bed, sitting in a chair by the living room door, ready to mark down the time and notice who came home late. I couldn't live like that. So gradually I checked around the house and discovered a wonderful window outside a little room on the back of the garage, the room where the washer and dryer were located. It was not really part of the house, so that window had no screen and no lock. I discovered that I could come home even with the garage doors down, go around behind the house, push up the window, slide in on my belly across the washing machine, ease in the kitchen door, slip into bed, and my mother would never even stop snoring. I never told my brother about how I got in. I thought he can find his own way in, and besides that, at least one of us needs to get in trouble, and it's better if it's not me. All through high school, I slipped in that way all hours of the night while I knew my brother got in trouble over and over again. In the spring of 1998, my mother died. For eight months before her death, she was in a nursing home. She had lost her sight. One day, my brother and I were visiting with her. She was stretched out on the bed with her eyes closed. He and I thought she was asleep. We sat there talking about old times the way we often did, and all of a sudden I said to my brother, I never did tell you how I used to sneak in at night when we were out too late in high school. And I told him about how I'd learned to slide in on my belly across the washing machine. But I never told him because I kind of wanted him to get caught. He laughed and he said, oh, I knew about that. But I didn't come in that way. I had a better way. I found a window on the back porch behind the living room that I could come in. It had a little crank that was supposed to open it, but I took the crank off, and then I could wiggle the window open, climb in, slip in the back of the living room, and I could get in bed the same way you did, and she'd never wake up. All of a sudden, with her eyes still closed, my mother said, I knew that. My brother said, you knew what? She said, I knew how you both got in. I knew that Donald came in across the washing machine, and I knew that you came in through the back porch. I knew you were going to do that when I pulled the garage door down. My brother said, you did? How did you know we were going to do that? With her eyes still closed, she smiled, and she said, because that's what boys do. My brother said, why didn't you catch us? She said, why did I want to catch you? You had it all fixed. 
The way you had it fixed, I could stay right in bed. I not only knew you were home, but I knew which one was home. I knew who came over the washing machine, and I knew who came in through the back porch. Why, if I'd caught you, I would have had to start getting up again at night and waiting by the kitchen door. Then my brother forgot for a moment, and he said to my mother, Why did you do that? And smiling, she said, Because that's what mamas do. When my mother died, I thought that the contract had been voided. Most of the time when you have a deal and one person's gone, the deal is off. But pretty soon I found out that our deal never went away, even in death. Because you see, still, once in a while, often without even thinking about it, I'll do one of those things that boys do. And as soon as I do, I will hear my mother's voice. Sometimes she says, put it back. Sometimes she says, I bet you won't do that again. And once in a while she says, ah, you're home now. We can all go to sleep. Donald Davis with That's What Mamas Do. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us on The Apple Seed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Apple Seed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.